Hi, and welcome to the bonus episode of Sentimental Garbage. Here I'm talking to the author of Unsticky, Sarah Manning, about sex scenes, Mills and Boone, the publishing industry, and why still the most creative professions are the hardest to get into. Um, all right, I'm going to get started properly. Okay, then. Hello, Sarah Manning. Thank you so much for having me in your living room. Oh, thank you for coming all the way to Muswell Hill. <laughs> it's quite the trek in the in the icy January winds. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit about your experience with writing this book, what brought it about, what that time in your life was. Because it's a little, bit, a little while ago now. Yes. Um, I think it was... It was around 2006, 2007. So mm. I'd been writing teen books mm-hmm. as we called them then now known as YA for ages and I'd just done it in a kind of really haphazard fashion I was working full time I didn't have an agent and so it was kind of I got made redundant and I was sort of doing shifts and things really wanted to write an adult book and I got an agent it was like this is time to get your shit together so I got an agent with the view that I was going to sort of like write adult books <laughs> she was going to help me um And I kind of, I remember we just went and had a meeting at Headline just to sort of like say hi. And it was actually with um, the wonderful Harriet Evans, who um, was an editor at Headline then. And now she's sort of, she's a a lady writer. And um, I don't think I had a really sort of concrete idea of what this like amazing adult book was going to be. But I just found myself kind of pitching this kind of younger man, sort of older woman, other way around older older man younger woman woman. just you know because I just grew up on Mills and Boone I was raised on my mother's Mm. Mills and Boones I was raised on daddy long legs I was sort of raised on books with like sardonic older men and sort of flighty young girls and I kind of loved that trope but then you know I was the age I was where I was sort of like in my late 20s you know I just I didn't love that trope quite so much, having just sort of experienced all the delights that sort of like modern manhood sort of has to offer. So I just sort of wanted to sort of take kind of that trope, which is just such a staple of romantic novels, and do something really sort of real with it. Mm. And just also that kind of sort of relationship, there's kind of a weird power dynamic, and there's kind of a transactional sort of quality to it and also at the time I'd been working on fashion magazines don't even ask me how I'd I'd worked on Elle magazine for a bit and um I was proper fashion fashion as well when I was working on Elle Girl which was just the best magazine it was like a junior Elle I loved it I used to get it so good but it, it It was always, we'd do an issue and then we'd be put on hiatus and never know if there was going to be another issue. Mm. And they sort of bumped me upstairs to Elle, which actually, it was really sort of lovely and everybody was really kind, you know, and I just sort of sat on the features and sang show tunes all day (laughs) and just kind of was a disruptive influence. But then when I was freelancing, I did a lot of celebrity stuff for Elle, of like being flown to LA to sort of like do cover interviews, which was just the most terrifying thing but it was quite especially with Unsticky I just kind of had this sort of defining moment where we'd sort of flown into sort of LAX and um, they had all the clothes for the shoot and you're meant to fill in a customs declaration but nobody ever does because you 
often end up having to pay extra and these things are always sort of done on a shoestring so you'd have to just pretend that it was like your personal clothing you know <laughs> are mine. yeah you know this kind of like um Kavai and Versace yeah they've got the tags on but they're all mine for my personal <laughs> use and so the fancy like high sort of fashion ladies were just like well we're not waiting to go through sort of like customs and just sort of swanned off and I was left with the fashion assistant and she just said Sarah can you just wait with me because I do not have any money to like get a car to the hotel you know and I I need you to do it and put it on your expenses because I haven't even and it was just this sort of this just sort of dual kind of existence that you know the fashion assistants on these magazines Unless you're sort of really posh, and a lot of them are really posh, it's a bit like publishing, you know, where you're sort of... There's family handouts and there's kind of sort of money, you know. If not, you're just sort of living on, like, no money, but, you you know, there's just all these beautiful dresses every day and you're kind of staying in a sort of hotel in L.A., but actually you've only got enough money to go to sort of Dwayne Reed and get yourself some, like, Doritos and a salsa dip. So I was kind of quite fascinated by that duality and then just some of it was like my sort of life five years previously because um I lived in that bed sitting archway with a a shared bathroom that did actually freeze up I'd gone to I'd gone to house sit in Hampstead over Christmas and when I got back we were having a cold snap and I went into the bathroom and a we had no water but there was like the infamous yellow ice in the toilet bowl and it was just and I remember my editor at the time just saying this is completely unrealistic nobody lives like this and I was like well yeah I live like this (laughs) so I mean that's the bit of the book I related to the most I I suppose so so Grace kind of came alive with that fashion assistant who was handling all these beautiful garments and yet couldn't afford her own taxi and I think that I think this will always be a relevant book because there will always be 23 year olds trying to make it in in these environments that both need them but don't want them yeah. where you're handling with all this incredible merchandise and yet you can't argue for an extra like two grand a year so you can pay your rent and like what's so fascinating about this book and Grace and the relationship she has with Vaughn who ends up having to sort of pay for her existence is that every female character in the book has their existence paid for by a man whether it's their husband or their father or something it's this, somebody is footing the bill and yet when Grace has this, what kind of starts out as being basically sex work, right? If we're... Well... I mean, it's, it's an arrangement, but it is, you know, a form well, of sex work. it's an interesting thing, though. You have to sort of like... Yeah, that's when everybody gets all moral about it, though, you but, know? you know, her point was always before, you know, Vaughan sort of wanted her to sort of have this arrangement. And can I just point out that I wrote this book before Fifty Shades of Grey... You know, and it's, it, you, this book is much better, more, yeah. much sexier than Fifty Shades of Grey. But um, you know, she would have shagged him anyway. So yeah, she have comes that, back to that a lot, doesn't she? They had that sexual attraction anyway, and it's just what is sort of the nature of sort of like relationships. You know, this it, so it goes back to this kind of this well-trodden sort of like younger woman, older man mm. trope. You know, when is a relationship a relationship? When is an arrangement an arrangement? It's just, you know, you could be sort of married and not working. Yeah. Which personally would just, like, really sort of sit uncomfortably yeah, yeah. with me. Um, there's just... I, I don't... There's Fifty Shades of Grey, isn't there? It's just these kind of sort of nebulous mm. sort of things. I mean, you know, if, 
if he's going to go out with somebody like that, she can't sort of turn up, can she? Sort of like in a yeah, and that's Primark <laughs> dress to go to some fancy kind of art opening. What's so interesting, and this is a massive spoiler, is that when it comes to the kind of towards the end, when he realizes how destitute she actually is, and he sort of says like, oh, "This was pin money, you know. I didn't think that you were. This was your whole existence. I didn't think you actually needed to do this. Was that really important for you? That like because he is." It's, it's he's such an interesting sexy intriguing character because he's such a bad bastard <laughs> for such a lot of the book like you know he does dreadful things to her and he puts her through dreadful situations but then when the kind of scales fall away and he realises how vulnerable she is he doesn't take advantage of her he really just provides in a way that is I don't know you know he really comes through for her yeah um it's just people are quite sort of clueless I remember when I was writing it and I had to do like a massive edit on it when I handed it in like mm. oh this is brilliant 33 page editorial letter wow and one of the things was that my editor was just like these allowances this is a huge amount of money so I don't understand why she's in debt and she was really she's a great editor but she didn't know much about fashion mm-hmm. and I actually just literally had to spell it out the way that Kiki does in the book that yeah. this money is nothing to sort of kind of you know, to kind of look like she's living the lifestyle that Vaughan wants her to sort yeah. of, you know, that money is just sort of like pissed away. It takes a lot to sort of look that good. Yeah, and, and, it, and it all kind of, she gets, you know, I think it's about five grand a month or something, and uh, or seven grand if you count in her clothing allowance. Yes. <laughs> um, and, but it all it all feeds back into his business. It's not just for his pleasure. He, yeah. um, he gains a lot of business through her charisma, through her sort of being able to mix well with people. And he's kind of, yeah, so in the book, he's kind of, you know, got a nose for, like, this second wave of, like, young British artists that yeah. he could, couldn't gain access to on his own. So he sort of needs, you know, Grace's kind of street cred and, you know, her sort of Hoxton credentials to yeah, kind yeah. of get an in. So, it's again, it's that weird sort of power dynamic of, like, who's in charge. And sort of as they get to sort of know each other and sort of have, like, proper sort of feelings for each other that's it's like a sort of seesaw and it's kind of constantly sort of yeah. you know swinging sort of one way or another um i just sort of find that whole kind of sort of dynamic between couples quite interesting i'm obsessed with like the real housewife <laughs> franchise really, yeah, really what city am. is your main thing oh I, well new york obviously <laughs> oh, but i'm doing <laughs> i i'd really just like done them all but <laughs> i've saved up like orange county for like yeah. dark days which are here and i'm kind of like halfway through season five <laughs> and there's this woman alexis and she's married to this awful man he's just vile and they both sort of say that they're godly Christians, although they're both on their second marriages. Mm-hmm. She doesn't work. She's sort of given him children. She's not allowed to sort of, like, go out without him. He's, mm-hmm. He expects her to dress, you know... She dresses in a very sort of sexually kind of... Provocative. Provocative way, but then he sort of... Which he enjoys, and she's got what I call Jesus jugs. Like, these huge... <laughs> boobs but then he's always sort of saying to her you know sit down I don't want other men looking at your ass and but then you know they're a sort of respectable Christian married couple but you know well he's just you know she's saying I love him and I wanted a certain lifestyle so just because you've got like a ring on your finger and a certificate that doesn't yeah, sort yeah. of make that relationship better or sort of more valid or kind of more kosher than 
what Grace and yeah. Vaughn go through. Um, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more, if it's not too embarrassing, about the sex in the book. <laughs> because the shagging is so hot. And it's really weird to sit next to someone on their couch and like talk about how turned on you were by their work. But I was very turned on by your work. And um, what I loved as well is I'd never, ever read a book before where someone's not orgasming is such a huge plot point. Like the sex scenes genuinely move the plot forward you know, in a way that has genuinely helped my writing because I was finishing my second book as I was reading this and I was like the sex scenes aren't doing enough and it really made me like punch them up some more well I'm glad to hear that yeah um well I'd written teen and my teen was kind of well it was you know was about as adult as teen could get so my protagonists were always kind of 17 and they would have sex and it wouldn't automatically fade to black but, you know, there just wasn't much talk of body parts when the thing. So when it came to write on Stephen... You were just bottled up, were you? It was like stabiliser wheels had come off. And I, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go for it. And um, <laughs> I had to cut out loads of the sex scenes because so many of them were gratuitous. <laughs> but, you know, I have very strong ideas about sex in books. Um, I think something that really sort of helped me is I just read a lot of, you know, I've always read a lot of fanfic... And just really? I just maintain, as I know, sort of probably Ella does as well. Some of the best writing I've ever read has been like fanfic, you know, and um, and some of those NC seventeen fanfics. It's quite funny. They're called NC seventeen. Yeah, it's kind of the American sort of rating, right, right? But they also call them um, PWP, which stands for Porn Without Plot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so. What was your favourite like pairing oh, of fan fiction? <sighs> I don't. I don't think I can say Caroline. Okay. Well, I read one the other day, and it was so it was so hilarious. So, um, someone sent it to me. Said that was this is brilliant, brilliant fanfic. And what it was was it was um, Devil Wears Prada, Miranda Priestly, and Anne Hathaway's character. Andrea fall in love which is you know fine yes Um, but like the majority of the fan fiction and it's about 30,000 words long they always are huge um, is almost no sex in it at all it's just about like managing redundancies at the magazine (laughs) it's like this isn't much of a fantasy (laughs) this is cold reality Oh, but I, I mean, I, I, I sort of was really, you know, I, did, I did read a lot of sort of Buffy fanfic, although Buffy and was not Buffy my and Spike name. is no, a great model yeah, here. But you know, wasn't my favourite pairing. Okay. Um, but you know, I just, I just sort of knew how I wanted to sort of write sex in a really sort of honest way and just call things what they are. Mm. I think I read a Candace Bush book, and in her sex scene, she actually referred to the penis and the vagina. It's just like. No, you know, just call a cock a cock, you know. But it's just also, you know, how people talk when yeah. they're, you know, having... So, but it was really sort of important for me, you know, that in this kind of... That I wanted to sort of be honest and sort of real about how these sort of relationships are. You know, she's 23, she's been out with a load of really toxic men. Yeah. Of course she's never had an orgasm. <laughs> of course she hasn't, you know. It's just... There's that sort of line where she just says to her... For, for, I think Lily, her friend, says, you know, when she says that she's had an orgasm before, and her friend Lily says, but I thought you said you couldn't have an orgasm unless you climbed on top and really wriggled. (laughs) You know, it's just... And I think 23 just is like a baby. You just know nothing. 23 is... 
I think a very unexplored age. I thought about this a lot because I'm my book I've just written, the characters are 23 and 24. And I think it's that weird age that people don't focus on enough where like it's that not a girl, not yet a woman thing. Of, yeah, like definitely. you have all the trappings of adult life. You have a job, you have a flat, you have a social order of some sort and responsibilities and bills, etc. etc. credit card, but you don't have a fucking clue how to make it make your way in the world. It's a really lonely time and it's often a time as well where the herd is being separated, where the people who are going to be really successful start making yeah. those first strides forward. And if you're not making those strides, you often feel like you're like, Oh my god, is this the kind of adult I'm going to be? Is yeah. this is, you know? I think it's like Grace says that she knows like the carb units and sort of the calories and every M&S ready meal. But, yeah. you know, she's kind of missed that memo on, like, you know, the other girls have got about how to have, like, really good sex. Yeah. And this is where it's, like, the benefits of sort of being with an older man, you know, that Vaughan sort of sees it as kind of, you know, he's quite offended, A, that she hasn't had an orgasm, but also that she wouldn't sort of tell him, you know, be sort of more vocal kind of about yeah. what she sort of wanted. Um, it is just a really sort of odd age I mean that was what was really sort of difficult for me writing Unsticky because it's like I'm going to write an adult novel now but it took me about 10 goes before I had something ready to sort of send out and my agent just kept saying no because you know my YA heroines were 17 and Grace was 23 Mm. six years but in that six years there sort of lies sort of multitudes and I just couldn't really sort of she was still too teen and sort of like flouncing off every sort of five seconds. Mm. And just that, there's some sort of really sort of... I think it was sort of Daisy Buchanan when we were sort of talking about Unsticky. She said nothing has changed and everything's changed in those sort of six years. Mm. And it wasn't actually until I sort of... this is I actually flipped it to third person, which I'd never written in before. Yeah, that was interesting. I was going to ask, what, that, was that the choice? Why? That was why. It yeah. just, there was something about writing in third person that just made ironically sort of just the greatest voice sort of come alive in a way because all my YA is first person which I really yeah. love because there's something about first person that's just kind of sort of quite breathless and yeah, yeah. and excited and um so it, it did also feel like I was a proper writer doing third person <laughs> I've never written in the third person either I find it I feel like a weird um sort of Four score and seven years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I've, I've been told now, it wasn't until like an editor told me that I did this. I was like, oh, okay. I write really close third person. Mm. So it's it's kind of, it's third person, but you're kind of right you're inside in the that character. Yeah, yeah there's a yeah. lot of kind of inner narrative. Um, but that was sort of like the magic sort of switch yeah, because it's third, it's third person, but it doesn't head hop. You're not like, you don't suddenly go to Vaughan and see what he's thinking. No. You never know anything that Grace doesn't know. I'd done that with Becky Sharp, though, because that's yeah. what like Thackeray does. And again, it was like, oh my God, I'm a proper writer. I'm doing my <laughs> multi-point of view third person. It's so funny, you've been making your career as a writer for so long, and you still have that, fe- that feeling I, I of like... I do. There's just, you know, it's, I started writing for teen magazines, which I just, I loved, I loved, but, you know, it didn't... You know, and then I did YA novels, and it was kind of like one day, one day, you know, I'll write a grown-up novel. Yeah, yeah. And then it was sort of like I write a grown-up novel, but what I really want to do is write sort of period. You know, it's always I just wish sometimes I could just be happy with kind of what I have instead of just worrying. Yeah, about, but if, if you were happy, why would you write? <laughs> you know, yeah, that's like you the just thing. go and have a you know. I suppose <laughs> once you're complacent, just kind of you yeah. know that hungriness goes. 
but it does but it always just sort of feels like I kind of it's like we were saying before that I kind of achieve things by kind of stealth and kind of like going behind people's backs and I'm just and then they turn around I'm like oh hi oh, <laughs> really just me, <laughs> don't worry about me you just get on yeah. with what you were doing I remember like I, I genu- part of me genuinely thought that the minute I had a book on the shelves I would never get another spot again do you know what I mean? That I would just change and transform and just be someone who's yeah. proper. <laughs> um, one of our guests actually on this season, uh, Julie Cohen, her name is, uh, she said something very interesting on her episode. She says, her theory is, all f- women's writing comes from three places, one of three places. It's either Austin, so it's, you know, rom-com or whatever. It's Bronte's, so it's, you know, gothic, troubling, all this kind of stuff. Or it's Elliot, so it's like social order and what we're all doing. Do you agree with that? No, not at all. all. (laughs) Don't like Brontes. Yeah. Haven't read any Elliot. Because I kind of thought Jane and Rochester had a vibe in here. It is just because it's the trope, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, just I can't. Brontes, all really? that kind of like, as Virginia Woolf said, mopping and mowing about the highways. <laughs> it's just too histrionic for me. And I really, I love Jane Austen, but um, certainly I can't really see much of her in, no. well, it would be Lydia, wouldn't it? Lydia and Wickham, really. <laughs> but, um, it know, would be Lydia and Wickham, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a nice, I can... But I, I couldn't, I couldn't sort of like think of my writing in those terms. No. I mean, I just basically, I think all my books are just summed up as sort of boy meets girl meets rock meets hard place. You know. <laughs> but there's like, well, I just think that because everyone knows that convention so well, it gives you incredible space to explore other well, exactly. themes. Exactly, that's what I wanted to do with Unsticky. It's just you know when you sort of sort of know the mechanics of sort of like romance novels back to front then yeah. yeah let's do something different with it yeah exactly you relax with the structure and then you can just enjoy the detail you know the funny thing is you know like I say it was really hard to get a deal it went out on submission back in the days when you could get a deal on a partial manuscript I, I can't believe there was ever a day of that <laughs> it was insane me. and you know it got rejected a lot um, one editor even felt the need to write to my ed- um, agent and just tell her that she was repulsed by... Repulsed. Repulsed. And, it, you know, like I say, I do think it was underpublished. Um, I agree. It, it I think it should out, be republished. I think it should be a Virago Modern Classic, to be honest. <laughs> it came out for a second time on the trans world with a new cover, and it was at the time of Fifty Shades of Grey. I was just like, put a Fifty Shades of Grey cover on it, just do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, no. Um, but... It is, you know, you don't have to say you love me so more, but there's just something about Unsticky that people sort of really, sort of weirdly kind of obsessed with it. Like, um, you know, I met some people from Mills and Boone at the thing, and they were like, we love Unsticky, we have copies in the office, you know, this is kind of, you know, what we think Mills and Boone should be. You know, it should be. You know, yeah, and, I, right. and I was kind of... It was really nice to me because, you know, I had grown up on Mills and Boone and I, I would never sort of talk of Mills and Boone in a sort of sneering mm. way because, you know, I just sort of think... I, I just have, like, this real sort of thing about sort of women's writing, sort of by women, for women, is always just sort of talked about in a sort of really sort of sneering mm. sort of way. But this is kind of, in so many ways, how we sort of figure out 
the world. And just some of the Mills and Boons that I read growing up, you know, just um, Sally Bowman, who's like a really successful kind of novelist in her own right, she wrote Mills and Boone, which I read um, Vanessa Jones. They are like some of the best written, just most amazing sort of romances. Really? Um, you know, and sort of Mills and Boone are just this amazing kind of social history documents, but just also they really sort of chart the changes in sort of women's role in society, but how relationships change. So when I was sort of reading Mills and Boone's in the 80s, they were, you know, they were sort of couples living together and stuff. So it, I was actually really sort of flattered that sort of, you know... That must be a wonderful thing to hear. Yeah, yeah you know. Um, I mean, I will always just sort of cheer on the side of sort of romance novels in all their sort of like amazing variety because you know it isn't just sort of boy meets girl happy ever after you know there's just so many sort of ways that you can sort of get to that place but interestingly enough I think sort of one of my problems when I was sort of doing these sort of contemporary novels for the first time I just had a real bee in my bonnet about like no happy endings aren't realistic and because you really feel like that you're gearing up for an unhappy ending for like two-thirds of this book Right, and then she starts to fall in love with them, like, or they start to fall in love with each other in this very, very deep, very lovely, homely, domestic way. It's really satisfying. But I really fought, like tooth and claw. I was just not going to have that ending where it's like, "I love you." Oh my god, I love you yeah. too. It was really important to me not to do that. And then with you don't have to say you love me. There's sort of another. It's a sweet ending, but there's no sort of like massive, you know, declaration. Mm. And I was sort of doing that with all my books. And then two things happened. I read a Marion Keyes thing. She said, it's just fucking rude not to give people a happy ending. And then, <laughs> Marion say that? Yeah. It's just like, you're right. And it then, is fucking rude. <laughs> it's fucking rude. And then my, one of my best friends, Kate, is like covered in tattoos. And she sort of plays in a monk's cover band. And she's just like rock and roll. She just goes, I love happy endings, Sarah. I love yeah. happy... And I was just like... People want happy endings. People can take maybe one sad ending in a decade. I remember t- Titanic. I remember that fucking me up and being like, that's not how it goes. How dare you? There was room for him on the top. Right. Once in a generation we get one of those heartbreaks, but like in between, it is fucking rude. It's fucking rude. It's <laughs> the most satisfying thing I've heard all day. It's so true. And also as I get older, you know, I'm not so interested in being sort of like clever and sort of a tricksy writer yeah. just want you know you just want to write like really good stories that sort of resonate with people and so what what's the what was the reader reaction to this was it kind of like a, a trickle that came in over time and then just kept coming in because like Jean who I'm interviewing for this has brought this up with me and I've only met Jean once and I've had like a few you know chats with her online but she always like have you tried Unsticky have you read Unsticky <laughs> for like three years like have you read Unsticky yet <laughs> but it's just you know, because it came out, I think it was first published in 2009. So even though, you know, there was Amazon and stuff, people just didn't review in the same way that they review now, where... Yeah. Oh, you didn't really have as much of a sense of what people thought or felt, did you? No. Um, but then I would just sort of meet people and they would just be, like, really obsessed with it. It, um, it gets under your skin. I think because apparently because it's so long because it, it like it but it's so breezy. I read it in a weekend and I am a slow reader and it's what it's four hundred pages long something like that. It's longer. You actually, spend so much it? time with these people well, like you really get to know them. I learned an important lesson. It was too long. I think it. 
we I had to cut a lot, but it still made in at 175,000 words. I think the finished yeah. book, that is long. When they tell you, like, 80 to 100,000 is a novel. Yeah. So it was, like, super long. <laughs> so how long was the, what was the work on, sorry? I think when I handed it in, it was something like 220,000. No. And I cut it down to 175,000. Here's a tip, if... For any novelist or would be novelist, don't write long books because you won't get translation deals. Oh. Because they're going to have to, you know, so novels are like between 80 to 100,000. So basically, they're going to have to pay a translator to translate those extra 75,000. That's a real shame. Because this would have done bonkers in France. Well, it? <laughs> it did get a German deal in the end because they bought another book first and I had to agree. <laughs> they would cut another 50,000 words and then they sent me the manuscript with the words that they were going to cut and I looked at the first page and I just thought you know what you're just better off not knowing I was just like they yeah, could just yeah. do what they want yeah, it. it makes no difference to you yeah so you know You Don't Have to Say You Love Me was really long but not as long and as I've sort of as I've wended, you refined your process over the years. As I've wended my weary way <laughs> across the publishing landscape, I have learned to write shorter, actually. Really? Yes. So me and Lucy Vine, who came on to talk about Watermelon, we have a theory, because both of our first books were written over the space of three or four months. And not, 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 not the time frame within the book is three or four yeah. months. And we think that debut novelists don't know how to cut to different times. <laughs> And this is the same. This is like five or six months. I know. Yeah. No, no debut novelist is ever like, and then six years later, and then two years yes. later. You just like, no, uh, every day she wakes up and does a new yes. thing. You and, know? Then, and then she did this, and then she did that, and then she ate her breakfast, and then she walked to the door. <laughs> it's like, you don't trust yourself to do a transition at all. <laughs> and then Tuesday, and then Wednesday. And I thought you used to get so head up about like, okay, now it's June, now it's July. Yeah. I had like an actual wall calendar up marking off all the days. But it's, I would just get really sort of bothered about, you know... I, there was one book I wrote and I was just really worried that they just seemed to spend a lot of time like, opening doors and standing in halls yes. and having conversations. Totally. And stuff. But then, you know, when, I think wherever you are in your sort of writing career, you just... You just have problems. I mean, it's just that sort of cliche. Every book you write, you end up sort of like yeah. copy editing it. And it's just like, oh my God, there's people Why did I make this stupid... Ch- yeah. Like left, right and centre. I only allow myself one arched eyebrow per book. Oh my now. God, my, my fucking first copy edit was just... You'd swear people were just eyebrows. <laughs> I can't even arch an eyebrow myself, ironically. I know, people furrowing, arching. Like, eyebrows are just not as expressive as people make out they are in books. Like, if an alien were to read just literature, they would think that the human body is just one eyebrow. <laughs> and supple muscles. A very voluble eyebrow, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it is too long. And yet, you know... No, it's no, it's not! But then I've, I've still got, like, all the stuff I cut from it as well. Oh, I would like to read it. Bet you would, <laughs> you, you dirty bitch. <laughs> and also, like, Grace was just... Sort of, I mean, she's... I, I think, you know, people did really respond to Grace in that she wasn't sort of a typical heroine mm. and she was quite truculent and sulky. But in earlier versions, she was just an outright bitch. She was really? Just like, yeah, and I didn't I even notice I'd think done that. that um, cause lots of times people are like, God, you're a bit of a bitch, aren't you? <laughs> She's quite nice. <laughs> but she was just... And it's not until, you know, this is why you have editors. And so I sort of handed in the book and my editor was just like, she's just, you know... 
Hard just work. sighing and huffing and puffing and mm. just sort of being nothing, you know, nothing makes her happy. She's just a bitch. And I was like, oh my God, she's a bitch. And then you're like, am I a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually very curious um, about the title. How did you land on Sticky? Oh God, well. Was it one of those? It was really difficult. It was so hard. I just didn't have a title. Kind of playing around with the idea of like mistresses and stuff. Mm. And it was, you know, I had these 10 attempts and I just didn't have a title. I think I might even have had a deal and not had a title. Yeah. I just took it right to the wire. And people have come up with some quite disturbing kind of like reasons that they believe it's called unsticky. All to do with sort of like lubrication and Grace's inability to oh. orgasm. Just like, no. It basically comes from, I can never remember if it's an epigram or an epigraph, the one that's at the front. Oh, yeah, no, I know. I find that confusing also. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, you know, this is just also one of the inspirations from Sticky. It's a line from Ian Forster's Where Angels Fear to Tread. And it just says, um, I seem to pass through life without ever colliding with it. If other people fall in love, they do it when I'm not around. Yeah. And it was just this idea of both Grace and Vaughan being those people that are just sort of passing through life without ever colliding with it, without, you know, both of them sort of feeling like they don't make an impression on anyone. Right, right. Or just not being sort of loved or sort of forming those sort of, you know, deep human connections. So that was kind of where Unsticky came from. Two people that were kind of not sticking to anything meaningful any one meaningful oh wow that's a lovely I love that I imagine that you I had also a journey with the title of my book and I imagine that we probably had some of the same working titles it was all stuff like dirty little secret and (laughs) really I find that you find the titles either you have like an amazing title right from the get go and I've actually written books because I had, like, an amazing title. Really? Yeah. Um, like, which one? Like, Adorkable, like, one of my really? teen books. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of the teen stuff, like, Let's Get Lost, you know. Yeah. I'm very big on song titles. But then the other ones are just the ones where, you know, you just can't think of anything. The book yeah. is kind of written, you know, your editor is in a conference room in kind of London Bridge <laughs> with a whiteboard, just coming up with things. And you're just like, no, and no. The, the worst is when you're like, you're like, oh my God, I finally have it. I have the title. I have the amazing title. And you give it to them and they come back a week later and they're like, marketing hates it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, just, and, you know, really sort of quibbling with sort yeah. of like, no, you know, I think I think it should be there rather than and, and yeah, just, yeah. you know, title, and then titles can be really weird. It's like when I did um, The Rise and Fall of Becky Sharp and it was mm. like a modern take on Vanity Fair, what were yeah. we going to call it? That was just my working title. And, and everybody was like, well, great, that's great. the title. Oh, easy. Yeah, Lovely. but just sometimes it's like a forceps delivery, isn't it? <laughs> it really it's just is. like the worst thing. And then in the end, just like words. What are words? What <laughs> are they? What is words? <laughs> um, last question, because I, I, I will leave you to your, to your work. Um, w- have you ever thought about a film adaptation? And if so, who would play who? Oh, God. In your dream, dream casting. But of course I would love a film adaptation. Yeah. I mean, Just the cash, really. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Netflix. Get with it. Oh, man. I'd love this on Netflix. Oh. Like but a I'm, I must series. admit, I don't think Netflix... Everybody goes, oh, they just do like these amazing rom-coms. The rom-coms on Netflix, by and large, I think... You don't care. The only, I thought Dumpling was very overrated. I love Dumpling. I liked the book. The 
kissing booth just made me oh, I didn't see that. cringe. Just awful. But oh. <laughs> and then um, they had this one that looked promising, and it had um, Lucy Liu as the heroine. Oh the yes, yeah. The setup, that, that was shows, yeah. Yeah, but um, oh, it's hard because you know I wrote it like ten years ago mm. now. So, um, just try, do you know who I really love, but I can't pronounce her name, and she's yeah. Irish, and you're just going to look at me now. See so Yeah. Really? I For Grace? She's make a really great Grace. How oh. old is she? No, she's, um, I think she's about my age. I think she's 27, 28. But she can play younger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I just good. really sort of love that idea as well, that Grace isn't, Grace yeah. is kind of Jolie does the French would say she's kind of pretty ugly. So... Not that she's pretty ugly. No, but no. She's just <laughs> no I know what you mean. I always like that thing of sort of a singular. Yeah, I like that thing in the book of like it's very clear and it's very clear that you've got this background in magazines as well of like beauty is a thing you pay for. You know, like this whole sense of her looking amazing because she has her spa. Yeah, all of a sudden she's getting like you know yeah. facials left, right, and centre. Beauty is like it's the time. And it's like money. It's like, yeah. you know, I follow some like housewives. Sure, like, sure, sure. Caroline Stanbury from Ladies of London on Instagram. She just has like the most bizarre like beauty things every day where she's sort of going and having these like weird sort of things. She's like obsessed with the sleep lines. Who's got the time and money sleep to be obsessed lines. about sleep lines? What's a sleep line? Well, exactly. But, you know, it's her raison d'etre to kind of have them erased. And, and, you know, I I was in hospital recently and I was quite ill and I had to have oxygen. And I come back home and I get on Instagram. (laughs) And I saw, like, celebrity having, like, an oxygen thing. I was like, that oxygen was saving my life and you think it's doing something to your skin. Oh, my God. I mean, it is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. So we have her as Grace, though. Yeah, that'd be good. And him. (sighs) I think he should be older. Like, yes. I mean, but like even older than he is in the, in the book, and he seems to be well, visibly inter- like it's so gray. interesting. I nearly got an American deal, really sticky, and um, it was all great. And then when I actually got like their notes, I was just like, I'm not doing it. Really, I turned out, it's kind of interesting that you know you will turn down the money. What do they want to change? Uh, they'd be like, he's too old. He needs to be older. I, I thought he was too young. That was my only criticism. He was too old. And it was just ridiculous things. They just they wanted her mother to die basically, and for the for Grace and Vaughan to have like rapprochement at the funeral. It was and it was just that wow. thing of you know you don't want this book, you want something else entirely. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it was just so. I did. I turned down the money. Was it a lot of money? It would you know it would have kept me going for a couple of years. Wow, it's kind of interesting. Johnny Geller super agent he does always say you always go with sort of like the money but I don't think that's true you know I have turned yeah. down bigger offers for other books just because you know I really sort of felt in my heart of hearts so you didn't get where you were coming didn't from didn't get it or the strategy yeah. sort of wasn't right probably you know I'd probably sort of just be like rolling about on like a bed of sort of like 50s <laughs> if I'd gone with it but you know yeah um I don't know who... Do you know, in my head, like, every, every romantic hero I write is, like, Dirk Bogard in the 1962 film I Could Go On Singing with Judy Garland. Aww. Of oh, just that kind of... I just really sort of... I just find really sexy those quite buttoned-up, sort of quite old-fashioned sort mm. of English men. 
I don't know why, because in real life they all vote Tory and they're like gammons. They would just be awful. Um, I don't know why. I think I'm definitely saying this because I interviewed him recently, but I think a younger Richard E. Grant would be fabulous. As in, with that kind of, you know, that kind of sort of debonair kind of. But then I don't think he's not fucked up enough. I just don't. He's so fucked. He plays fucked up very well. But I think there's a real darkness in Vaughan. Yeah. Something, you know, quite. Until he meets. Grace, something quite malevolent, actually. I mean, the adrenaline shot in the leg. Yeah, do you know what? That was really a funny mental to me? scene. Somebody, what, when? Because I heard about Fifty Shades of Grey quite early on. Yeah. When it was, I think it was after, after it was a fanfic. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget, it was a Twilight fanfic. Mm-hmm. So it had come out as kind of this sort of on this weird Australian sort of thing, and. I remember sort of, I saw this blog review for Unsticky and they were just sort of going, you know, he's, we were hoping he'd be another Christian Grey because all these women wanted was just sort of like yeah. more like Fifty Shades of Grey. And they were just saying, you know, that, you know, Christ, Christian would never, he would never do that. He would never give somebody an adrenaline shot. <laughs> and then when I read Fifty Shades of Grey, like he fucking like pussy whipped her and she was pregnant. Mm. How is that worse than giving somebody an adrenaline shot when they got flu? <gasps> but... It's yeah. a mad scene, though. It's so brilliant. Like, and you know, I think it was really important that she does actually just say, "I hate you." Yeah, you know, you're not a nice person. But yeah, and and the fact that they don't break up after that. I mean, they do break up for a bit towards the end. But then I but, think that's when she really kind of realizes, you know, who he is. Yeah, you know, and what I sort of really sort of liked as well. And this comes from like doing pretty women in feminist film studies is, you know, that she kind of saves him from him, her, himself. Yeah. So it's not just he saves her. She does just as much as of the heavy lifting. You could just imagine what his life would be like. Yeah, he would have just spun out for years and years doing the same thing and then just died alone, you know, probably just, quite yeah. young. He'd have had a stress-related heart attack yeah. like five years down the line. I just, I think one of the most romantic scenes in it was when she just gives him a shepherd's pie. <laughs> <laughs> so nice who doesn't love a shepherd's pie it, it was really like you know when you're reading a Victorian novel and um, the character comes out of the rain and they've been in the rain for days and then they're like oh here have a hearty stew and then you just the relief you feel it was like that level of relief <laughs> anyway I better wrap this up because we have been here for absolutely ages but Sarah thank you so much oh, for this lovely afternoon thank you so much for coming and asking me loads of like, lovely questions oh and um, before we go what is the next sort of thing we can hear or see from you what, what should we look out for I'm, I'm resting at oh. the moment well well hopefully the next thing I'm going to write is um I'm going back to writing contemporary after mm-hmm. a brief flirtation with period and I'm going to be writing a novel that's inspired by Marjorie Hillis's 1936 guide live alone and like it fabulous yes that sounds great. Oh, you can live alone and like it and yet still be in love with somebody and have and a fulfilling relationship. You live alone. I live alone. Do you like it? Love it. <laughs> <laughs> what better a person? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Verrill.